Well, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be in there today. Um, but first, I'm going, to, I'm going to begin this morning by reading the first few paragraphs of a speech from Ronald Reagan that he gave on October 27th, 1964. He said, I've spent most of my life as a Democrat. I recently have seen fit to follow another course. I believe that the issues confronting us cross party lines. Now, one said in this campaign, telling us that the issues of this election are the maintenance and peace of peace and prosperity. And the line has been used. We've never had it so good. But I have an uncomfortable feeling that this prosperity isn't something on which we can base our hopes for the future. See, no nation in history has ever survived a tax burden that reached a third of its national income. Today, 37 cents out of every dollar earned in this country is the tax collector's share. And yet our government continues to spend $17 million a day more than what the government takes in. We haven't balanced our budget 28 out of the last 34 years. We've raised our debt limit three times in the last 12 months. And now our national debt is one and a half times bigger than all the combined debts of all the nations of the world. We have $15 billion in gold in our treasury. And we don't own an ounce of it. Foreign dollar claims are $27.3 billion. And we've just had announced that the dollar of 1939 will now purchase 45 cents in its total value. As for the peace that we would preserve, I wonder who among us would like to approach the wife or mother whose husband or son has died in South Vietnam and ask them if they think this is a peace that should be maintained indefinitely. Do they mean peace or do they mean we just want to be left in peace? See, there can be no real peace while one American is dying someplace in the world for the rest of us. We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose that war, and in doing so, lose the way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. Well, I think it's time we ask ourselves if we still know the freedoms that were intended for us by the Founding Fathers. Now that speech probably sounds a little familiar. And this speech goes on. But I wonder what Mr. Reagan would say today, given the state of our country, if he would give that same speech or not. And the point here is that Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, peace and prosperity has never been a guarantee for any of us. We're currently in a time where there are rumors of wars 
and economic hardships. Stocks are down. The price of gold is down. The price of the dollar is down. And so far, the recovery effort seems to be just making things worse. But times of peace and prosperity are never guaranteed. And most of the time, they're short-lived, if at all. And I want us to keep in mind today, keep all of this in mind as we walk through our text, that peace and prosperity is not always guaranteed on this earth. And it certainly is not something that we should bank our futures on. But in Christ, we have a peace and prosperity that can never be taken away from us. Starting in verse 12 in Mark chapter 11. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now remember that last week, Jesus made his triumphal entry. He rode into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, and people were laying their cloaks and palm leaves on the ground, and the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Then Jesus made his way into the temple, but it was already late in the day. And so Jesus and the twelve with him departed into the small town of Bethany just outside of Jerusalem to get some rest. And then our text this morning, it picks up in verse 12. But before we get to that, I want us to understand the fig tree for a moment. So the common fig tree could grow to be around 19 feet tall. And it normally produced two crops of figs. The first one is called the breva, or the early fruit, as it is seen in the Old Testament. The other one is much more fruitful, and it comes in just a little later in the season. The fig is also a valuable fruit in this time period, Because it could be used medicinally. It could also be made into a cake for food. And more importantly for us today, it was also a sign 
of peace and prosperity in the land. Now, you don't have to turn there, and it's obviously not going to be up on the screen for us. So if you want to turn there, you can. In Micah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, He shall, shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And then again in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs. Flowing out in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley. Of vines and fig trees. And pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. And then one more in 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 25. It says, And Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. All the days of Solomon. Now in all three of those passages, there are two things in common. Peace in the land and the fig tree. I also want us to understand this peace and prosperity that the religious elites are experiencing. With the Roman rulers in charge of the lands and their desire for peace and prosperity, they've enlisted many of the Jewish leaders. And their job, more than anything, was to keep the peace in the streets. And this is one of the reasons that, uh, that they wanted to get rid of Jesus. But with his growing popularity, they're afraid that it will cause riots in the streets. And then the Romans themselves would have to step in and take care of business. And remember, we're entering the Passover season right now. So there are tons of people from all over that are gathered. And in return for their keeping the peace, the Roman rulers would allow some special privileges that others did not get to experience. One of which is money. A portion of the taxes, as well as whatever they managed to steal from others through the temple tax, belonged to them. And now, in verse 12... We see Jesus and his disciples are up early and on their way to the temple for the day. And Jesus was hungry. And then in verse 13, we see Jesus approach a fig tree. And since, since this is happening during the Passover, Jesus would have been looking for that earlier fruit on the tree, the breva. But he only finds leaves. No fruit. Because it wasn't season for the fig just yet. And then verse 14 shows Jesus cursing that fig tree. 
that no man will ever eat fruit from it again. And this probably leaves us with a question. Why does Jesus curse a perfectly good fig tree? Well, Jesus is setting up a sort of picture lesson for the disciples. A picture lesson on faith and spiritual unfruitfulness. But this picture lesson primarily has to do with the temple. A place that should be known for its peace and fruitfulness in all seasons of life. But as we'll see, it has become fruitless. One commentator ends his thoughts on these first few verses by saying a tree in full leaf at Passover is making a promise that it cannot fulfill. So too is Israel. And just as Micah, speaking for God, described his disappointed search for the first ripe fig for which I hunger. And so Jesus, on his initial visit to the temple, has found all leaves, but no fruit. See, God's house, the temple, and the Jews were very much alive. Just like the fig tree was. But they were not producing any real fruit as they should have been. Which brings us to verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, we see Jesus entering the temple once again. Only this time, what he sees is troubling. And before we get to Jesus' reaction, I want us to see why people are buying and selling inside of the temple. See, the temple was built on this massive raised platform. And inside of the temple, there were a bunch of courts. And each court was for a specific group of people. The outer court, the very first one that you came to, was the court of the Gentiles. And it was a court for all people to enter. And then as you walked forward into the temple, you came to the court of women, which was for the Jewish women to sit and worship God while sacrifices were being made. And then the court of Israel for the Jewish men to worship while their sacrifices were being burned. And then finally, the court of priests made only for the Jewish priests while they were making their sacrifices. And so merchants, they weren't allowed into any of the inner courts of the temple. So the merchants... Naturally, they set up shop in the court of the Gentiles where they were allowed to go. But why were they there in the, in the first place? Well, every Jewish male, 20 years or older, had to pay the annual temple tax, which was a half a shekel. And those that did not have the money for the temple tax were able to trade for it. And those that were foreigners were also allowed to trade currencies in order to pay the tax. The animals were most likely being sold and traded for the annual sacrifices to be made. And remember, this is happening during the Passover. So there's tons of people coming from all over the place. This place is crowded. People are coming to worship and, and make their annual sacrifices 
And most of these money changers or tax collectors were most likely overcharging for the temple tax so that they could pocket the rest of the money. Remember, it was one of those privileges that they had. And essentially, they were making or they were robbing people. And Jesus, he sees what's happening and he's described as throwing out those who were trading and selling. This word throwing out in the Greek, it's a really strong word. And it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the casting out of demons. Mark used this to show that Jesus was angry. This was not a pleasant trip for him. We also see Jesus overturning tables and chairs. And then in verse 16, it is as if Jesus has completely stopped all activity within the temple. And he begins to rebuke all of those involved with what the temple has become. In verse 17, it says, Mark, er, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, before I continue on, we need to understand that this passage is not some sort of justification to go around flipping tables and being angry at people. There's a difference between a righteous anger and a sinful anger. Jesus was angry because the people had profaned the house of God. Not because he missed breakfast and was a little bit hangry. We must remember that anger in and of itself isn't sinful. But the reason that we get angry and the way that we lash out at people in our anger can be sinful. So we need to be careful and keep our hearts in check. And then back to verse 17, in the very first part of uh, verse 17, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, which says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of God says that God's temple should be joyful, holy, and full of prayer. And that it should be for all people of all nations. Even in the Old Testament, God was calling people from all nations to himself and building his kingdom. And then Jesus alludes to a passage from another prophet, Jeremiah, in that second part of verse 17. And I want us to turn there for a moment and read this passage because it helps us to visualize what was going on here and why Jesus was so angry. If you want, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, and I'll be in verses 8 through 15. It says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, 
make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. See, during Jeremiah's time, this problem arose with the people. And it seems that it is a problem that has continued into the New Testament days. They were essentially living like the rebels they were, even worshiping other gods, and then coming to the temple for Passover, making their annual sacrifice for forgiveness, declaring their deliverance, and then going right back to their sinful lifestyles, even worshiping other gods. They weren't truly seeking forgiveness of God. They weren't truly repentant and turning from their sin. And they were essentially robbing God of the worship that only he is due. And to make it worse, they were doing it in his own house. And now you might be asking, how is this relevant for us today? Since we don't have temples and we don't make animal sacrifices, and if you do, we need to talk. But how many of us treat God this way? How many of us are living a life of rebellion all week and then come to church on Sunday mornings declaring that we are the children of God and forgiven of all of our sins? And then turn around and go back to the very sins we say we're forgiven of. See, we think that coming to church will somehow garner some forgiveness from God. And as soon as we walk out the door, we're looking at our brothers and sisters and thinking, man, did you see so-and-so today? I can't believe she wore that to church. Or did you see, oh, what's his name? Come in, smelling like a brewery. Can't believe they would do that. We come running to God on Sunday mornings with our hands lifted high, declaring our forgiveness, and then rebelling against God as soon as we sit down. And we look around to see who all showed up. And taking mental notes of everyone who didn't show up. While simultaneously shaking our heads. Saying how dare they not come to church. 
And I'm not pointing fingers at anyone because I'm guilty myself. But this is what the Israelites were doing. And it is what Jesus saw happening in the temple. This is why he was so angry. And we need to think about this. Through the incarnation, that is Jesus taking on flesh, God himself was visiting his temple. And what he found was not pleasing to him. Because sin angers God. Sin angers the very king who saved us and gave himself for us. And our sin should anger us. It should break our hearts. Not because we had some tiny little mishap. But because we've sinned against our holy God. And God does not take it lightly. God sent His only begotten Son to die for our sins. That is how seriously God takes it. What we see in these passages today is that there is a coming judgment. Not only for the temple, but for the people allowing the temple to be turned into a den of robbers. Robbing God of the very worship that he is due. Matthew Henry says in his commentary that Christians are holy by profession. And should be pure and clean. Both in heart and conversation. He is deceived who deems himself the temple of the Holy Ghost. Yet is unconcerned about personal holiness. Or the peace of and purity of the church. And Christian, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You can look at 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, which Krista read for us this morning. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So you've been set apart from the world, called to be holy and transformed by the very Spirit of God that is living within you. You can look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. It says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God has not called us and given us to Christ so that we might continue living as the world lives. God wants us, his temple, To be a holy people. Set apart from the world. And this is why the world will hate us. Because we're not like them. See, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. 
John 17, verses 14 through 17 says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And if God takes sin seriously, then we also must take sin seriously. And I know that talking about sin and repentance isn't a popular message, but it needs to be heard. Because far too many of us in the church today believes that we can live with one foot in the world and the other in the church. We pretend to be holy on Sunday and the rest of the week we live exactly like the world wants us to. And this is a message that Jesus was willing to die for. That we repent of our sins and live a holy life. Listen, Christ died for your sins so that you can truly live in peace with God. Which brings us to verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19 tell us that the Pharisees were now plotting a way to kill Jesus without the people knowing about it. Remember, the Jewish leaders did whatever the Roman leaders wanted them to do. In this way, they were privileged and able to keep some of the tax money so long as they kept the peace in the streets. But the text says that the people were astonished at Jesus, his teaching here. And remember, many of the people that are there for Passover, they've already heard of Jesus. Or they've seen him perform miracles in person. So the Pharisees, they're afraid that if the people found out that they were plotting to kill Jesus, the people would riot. And the Roman rulers would then have to step in and the peace and the prosperity within Jerusalem would be over. And so the Pharisees begin to come up with a plan in private to kill Jesus and get rid of him quietly as not to disrupt the people. We also see here that Jesus and the disciples, they leave the town. They leave the town most likely after dark and head back to Bethany for some rest. Then on the next morning, as Jesus and the disciples were making their way back to the temple for the day, Peter notices the tree that Jesus had cursed. And in shock, Peter lets Jesus know that this tree has now withered down to its roots. So the tree is dead. All the way down to the roots. It cannot be brought back to life. And it will never bear the fruit of peace and prosperity again. See, in cursing this fig tree... Jesus has essentially declared that the times of peace and prosperity 
were officially over. Things are fixing to escalate very quickly around the temple. This tree is representing the temple and its eventual destruction. As seen in Mark chapter 13 verse 2 where Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. It says, And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. See, the people have profaned the temple of God. And so it will be destroyed in judgment against it. And there was a purpose for this. It wasn't just God being harsh with the people. Because God does everything with a purpose. The band, y'all can go ahead and come up. D.A. Carson, he says that God's ultimate purpose for the temple find their fulfillment in Jesus, the people of the church, and the new creation. See, unlike the temple that was destroyed and never rebuilt, Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. And the people of God are being built into a new and better temple, this body brought together by Christ himself. And one day, all things will be made into a new creation with the Father and the Son ruling side by side. We all desire peace and prosperity here on earth. But we must not be trusting in these temporal prosperity of this fleeting earth for our futures. Or our children's futures. Or our grandchildren's futures. And the truth is, we may never even get it this side of heaven. This world is a crazy mess. Just look at the news. And we can only pray that it gets better. But in Christ, we have all the peace and prosperity we could ever ask for and more. And one day we will live with our King. John 14 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And the lack of peace and prosperity here on earth, sometimes it, it builds this fear and this anxiety within us. But Paul reminds us in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian, then you are in Christ. And this peace is yours to have. All of our worries and fears, you can go to God with those things. He wants you to bring those things before him. And he will guard your heart. If you're not a Christian... I pray that God gives you the strength to repent and the faith to place in Christ alone for salvation. Jesus says in John 14, 
that no one comes to the Father but through me. That means that there is nothing you can do to earn the justification you need to be right with God. Jesus did it for us. And because he lives, we can live. As we do every week, I'll be in the back if you need prayer, just need to talk about anything that's going on. Let's pray.